something I, that I actually got a lot of entertainment out of when reading this is picturing all the male characters with huge 70s sideburns. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think about that at all? <laughs> I actually did, but now I will. Now I totally will. I love that. Lillian, are you feeling spooky today? I am feeling spooky and it's sort of stormy here. So we might get some thunder, which is very good for today's episode. Oh my gosh. How are you feeling, Piper? Spooky? I am spooky and excited. Um, I also, same weather and it's the one time when I'm like, ooh, it'd be nice to have some background noise. Um, (laughs) But I think the reason we are so spooky and excited on today's episode is because we are actually being joined by a very special guest. Um, She is a horror and speculative fiction author it's Gwendolyn Keist. Gwendolyn has published six novels and enough short fiction to fill a tomb. Uh, she's a Bram Stoker award-winning author, and today we are honored to have her on the show as we discuss her newest novel, Reluctant Immortals. So, Gwendolyn, welcome to Air Buds. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay! <laughs> We're glad to have you. <laughs> yeah, we've both been really excited about this, kind of as we've been reading the book. We've been checking in and be like, oh, this is, like, really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm really excited about this. <laughs> So happy to hear. Yay. I'm so happy to be here. Like, I, I feel like we scheduled this a while ago, and I've been looking forward to it ever since. We've re- alluded to a book that you wrote, um, and Piper, I believe, said the name, but do you want to tell our listeners just like um, a little bit about the book for those who maybe haven't had the opportunity to, to even hear about it? Absolutely. So, my latest novel is Reluctant Immortals, and it is the story of Lucy Westenra from Dracula and Bertha and Juanetta Mason from Jane Eyre, and they are immortals living in 1967 California and still dealing with the uh, men from their past, Dracula and Edward Rochester, and it's set during the summer of love, so there's there's hippies and horror hijinks and just like a lot of groovy gothic fun. <laughs> groovy gothic fun should be maybe one of the boilerplate quotes <laughs> <laughs> yes. there for the book. <laughs> I think um, that was one thing that uh, stood out to both of us right off the bat is um, because obviously on our show, we talk about Jane Eyre, which is typically this kind of gothic Mm -hmm. classic literature. Um, But even though Jane Eyre gets a little spooky, like your book had some great horror elements to it, which I'm a fan of. And I know Lillian got a little ooked by. Oh, really? (laughs) I I just, I'm like the the easiest person on earth to spook. I'm so easy to spook. I spook myself all the time. <laughs> so I just, I messaged Piper at one point. I was like, I may need you to read this first and then tell me what happens. Because um, it's, it's very good. I genuinely really, really loved it. And the story within that, I don't think people who are less easily spooked than me probably won't have a problem with how spooky it is. But especially those first few chapters, like even before it gets like really into some of the other stuff, it there's, I just sort of felt like creeped out, oh, good. which is very well done. Yeah. It's like very, very well done. But I just had to read it during the day. I love that. Oh my gosh. I love that. That's great. We always like to start with our guests because we're an uh, Jane Eyre podcast. We talk about different adaptions of Jane Eyre. What, obviously, you know, the story yes. of Jane Eyre, what was sort of your experience with that? And what sort of 
got you into, what was your first time you heard of it? What do you think of it now? That sort of stuff. Yeah. So the first time I ever, I actually saw it first, it was like a Saturday afternoon and it was me and my dad and we're just like flipping through channels and it's like halfway over. My dad's like, oh, this is Jane Eyre. And it was the Orson Welles, uh, Joan Fontaine version. And like, he like knew it right away and like got me up to speed as to, okay, here's what's happening. And like, told me all about everything, like up to the point that we were at. And it was great because I feel like at the point we were like right in the midpoint starts getting really creepy all the gothic stuff starts coming out at that point we were only like maybe like it was probably more than halfway over but I was just so fascinated by this movie I knew who Orson Welles was and I was like I didn't know he was in like this weird gothic like romance movie and so I remember seeing like the character of Bertha like you know kind of in the background she's only like a shadow in that version and being like what is this and like I never really stopped thinking about it after I was only about 10 12 maybe at the time and I'm like what is this book like what is this movie that it you know and so I that was my first introduction and then I read the book later and I've seen a number of the adaptations not all of them and I love following you guys because then you guys find ones that I'm like I didn't even know that one existed so it's like now there's like I've got homework I've got to see more versions of it but you know I love it and it's it's Funny because in Reluctant Immortals, Edward Rochester is definitely villainous. He's definitely an antagonist. But I always laugh because it's like, I feel now, because when I was younger, I thought it was just very romantic. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, he's not the nicest guy. But there's still a part of me even now. I'm like, there's a half of me. It's like, I still think it's romantic. And the other half of me is like, this is horrible. He's not a nice guy. So I kind of like went at writing this book in that way of like, you can have these two feelings that are completely opposite. And it, it's interesting, especially when you grow up with something like Jane Eyre, that it's like, you know, it is, it's, oh, it's a romance. And as you get older, it's like, hmm, that's not a romance I want to have, though. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> the more she feels 19, the more that I'm like, um, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> She's 19 years old. Well, this is happening anyway. But yeah, that's a feeling that I think both Piper and I and our audience can relate to of like, I like it, but do I? Yes. Well, see, I think that's what is so compelling about the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will talk about um, our unfamiliarity with Dracula as much later on. But um, from from reading this and from watching so many versions and from talking Mm -hmm. to so many people who are so, like, stuck in, like, what is this story? I think that's the biggest draw is it's that moral question, right, of, like, Mm -hmm. Does romance, um, how does it, you know, compare to your moral compass and all these other wonderful things? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do just want to note for our listeners, because um, we ju- we got so excited, we jumped right in. <laughs> but we are going to be talking a lot about Gwendolyn's book today. We're going to start with a non-spoiler conversation around it. So mm-hmm. some of her inspiration, some of the things that you could get, like, from the back of the book and those pieces of information. And then at some point... We will let you know we're anticipating around halfway through, but we'll make a big announcement if you don't want spoilers (laughs) um, so that you can stop, go read this incredible book, and then come back and hear about all of those spoiler conversations. And um, for those of our listeners who are really interested in reading this book, uh, you don't have to wait too long. This is coming out on Monday the 22nd, and the book comes out Tuesday the 23rd. So you can go go ahead and, and order it or call your bookstore, your local bookstore and tell them, Hey, do you have this book? Cause I want to come buy it tomorrow. <laughs> and there's lots of opportunities to do that. We'll make sure to put out there um, on all of our social where you can buy the book. Absolutely. And we'll have uh, later on links in the episode description as well. Mm-hmm. 
But um, getting into the the book itself, and like Lillian mentioned, we want to kind of start by kind of asking you about your inspiration for this. So you saw that, and, and Jane Eyre stayed in your head. I mean, how did the rest of this come together to say, I want to write Reluctant Immortals? So... Uh- when I was even younger, I actually, you know, first heard of Dracula. So I feel like I first heard of Dracula like five or six years old, maybe even younger, because I think Dracula as a character sort of looms over pop culture. Even if you haven't read the book or haven't even seen an adaptation, you're kind of aware that Dracula is, is a character. Dracula is a thing. And so I was a fan of Lucy uh, for a very long time because I was always like, oh, it's not fair. Lucy dies in the book. That's not fair. Poor Lucy. So you know when I was like six, seven years old, I'm like, oh, and I would always think about Lucy and be like, that's not fair. And over the years that I would think about Bertha and I'm like, what happened to her and Jane Eyre isn't fair either. And so this just like, this would keep coming up in, in, in like my mind. And then I wrote a couple of short stories, one about Lucy And then one about like, it's called the woman out of the attic. That's just a general, like, it's kind of like that, that trope of the woman in the attic, obviously Bertha's the original, but a lot of things have kind of played with that over the years. That's been a very popular sort of Gothic trope in, in, in books and movies since then. And so I wrote a story about that as well. And then I thought, you know, it'd be so interesting. These characters have so many parallels between them. They both die You know, and then you have, like, the characters of Nina and Dracula and Jane Eyre and Jane Eyre that, like, are the ones that live. And and I kept thinking, you know, it would be interesting to see these two characters together. And I was like, you know, why don't I write that? That's a story I always, I would want to read. And I always say, you know, write the story you want to read. And I felt like with the 1960s, it was such a tumultuous time. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to explore something like this, something very feminist, something, a very unusual way of looking at these two characters. And plus I like the 1960s. I've always, I've researched the 1960s since I was like a kid. So I was like, I know a lot about it already. So I feel like I can do this, you know? So yeah, that was really where it just came from. of really just putting these two characters that I, I love together in a setting that I was like, that seems interesting. Like what would happen there? Like, I want to know what would happen there. So I'm going to write that, see how that turns out. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's that's such a fantastic inspiration. I love when that's you can really read that in some books. You can really see that the author was like, I think this is fun. Yeah. Like you can sort of see that come through in this book, just in some of the like little references you have. And specifically, um, the 60s in California was one of the questions that I was really wondering about as I read this, because I my family happens to be from the Bay Area originally. Yay. I live in Minnesota now, but my dad was born in San Francisco. His sister actually lived in Haight-Ashbury when she was 17 in 1969. (laughs) No way. That is the coolest thing. Oh my gosh. I'm so jealous. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So like I, I like went to Haight-Ashbury and we found where her old apartment was and like all this stuff. So, um, all the stuff that you're referencing in the book, I'm like, I've either seen that or I've heard about that. Or like, I know, like, I called my dad at one point and I was like, the way she talks about San Francisco geography, you would love. Because <laughs> um, he's a big nerd. So he would just get really excited about that part specifically. But um, I was curious about kind of, you you referenced a little bit about why the time, but why San Francisco? What kind of drew you specifically to that? Yeah, so I've always loved California. Like I, I haven't spent a ton of time there, but I've spent a little bit of time there. And my husband and I were actually married there. We were married in the Redwood Forest. And so like, I just, I love the state. And I think one of the things I think is interesting about California, at least when I was growing up, it, 
it's a place, obviously, but it's almost like a dream or a promise. There's a lot of idea about what is California. There's this, you know, it's there's more sunshine there than say where I grew up in Ohio or where I'm at now in Pennsylvania. So it's very, you know, sunshine. There's Hollywood. There's people would go out there to achieve their dreams, whether that be for, you know, again, with Hollywood, or I even like, I like John Steinbeck, that's like kind of random, but I think of the Joads in the Grapes of Wrath, and it's like, their whole thing is we got to get to California, it's the place we're going to be able to survive, and it's so, to me, California is such an idea, and I thought that would be such an interesting place for them to be, because they're trying to find that kind of promise, they're trying to find that kind of way through life, and you know, it starts in Los Angeles, and I liked that, because Again, I, I originally was introduced to Dracula and Jane Eyre through the movies. That was, you know, I know I'm a writer and I always feel bad that a lot of the first introductions I've had to things are through movies. And I think a lot of people are like that because, you know, especially like Dracula and Jane Eyre, you're probably not going to read that till you're a little bit older, middle school probably at the earliest, maybe not even until high school or college. But you might see the movie in elementary school, you know, you might see that younger. And so I thought it would be interesting to start them in L.A. in this place where we associate with with the versions of Dracula and Jane Eyre that many of us first saw. And then going up to San Francisco, I was always just fascinated by the summer of love. I always just thought it was kind of this, you know, between that and then Woodstock, I feel like are the two things that so many of us think about when we think about the hippie movement, when we think about, you know, peace and, and love and like trying to get social change in this positive way. So because these characters are trying to find their way and trying to find like a positive way through, it just seemed like a really interesting place for them to be. Plus they're a little bit like fish out of water because they're still kind of like Victorian proper ladies. <laughs> Even though this is more reflective of where they want to be, they're both like, we don't really know what to do here. This is not like who we are or where we're from. <laughs> so that can be fun to have that juxtaposition between characters who are like, what is going on around me? This is really, you know, <laughs> different. <laughs> so you must have, I mean, with that love for that setting, you must have had a moment, though, where you thought to yourself, I've got at least two vampire characters and I'm sending them to the Sunshine State. How did that kind of go in your brain? <laughs> I don't even remember the exact moment that I did think about that, but I'm like, wow, yeah, like that would be like the worst place for a vampire to be, right? It's so sunshiny. Like I said, I'm originally from Ohio. I live in Pennsylvania. We have a lot of overcast days here, a lot easier, I would assume, for a vampire. But yeah, I did think how much fun that is. And then especially I realized, and this wasn't until I was like working my way through the book that like, you know, it's the, it's the, uh, the longest day of the year on like the summer solstice right at the time that they're actually in San Francisco. So it's like they had even less time than they normally would to have, you know, Lucy be outside. And so, yeah, I was like, wow, that's even like another way of like, you know, the sunshine being like an enemy to them. So that was actually fun. I actually felt like there, there's like built in tension just from basically, you know, the weather and, and the sun. So that, mm -hmm. that's always, it's always nice when like even the weather can give you something to, to do with your plot. Absolutely. And that you saying that just then makes me kind of think of there are so many moments in your story where it's about the girls are so limited about, you know, mm -hmm. the amount of daytime where they can travel and be out and about. But it also kind of locks them into these different like places and locations. Like mm -hmm. I think of them being in their house and, mm -hmm. you know, keeping everything closed up and they have these sort of small spaces. And then how you deal with that with Bertha's whole thing of, you know, the, her claustrophobia. So that was it's a very interesting layering of that. Thank you. 
Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That was was also something because it was like when I started and I'm like, well, what would that be like if you had been locked in an attic for a long time? It's like Mm -hmm. right away I'd be like, well, I would want wide open spaces if it were me. I would not want to be in a closed in space. And and so that that kind of naturally built into that from there, the things that like are really haunting both Lucy and Bertha throughout the book. Absolutely. Yeah, speaking of of that sort of choice to lock Bertha in the attic, Mm -hmm. um, and obviously in your story, Rochester is very clearly a villain. Yes. Um, A very well done villain who scared me a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But but very clearly a villain. And I'm wondering, um, because we talk a lot about how in the different adaptions you can read, we often will joke about how in some of the versions you're like, no, I'm pretty sure Bertha is fine. And Rochester called her crazy and put her in an attic. Um, And that feels very open to interpretation within Mm -hmm. the book of Jane Eyre. So when you read Jane Eyre, when you see the adaptions, do you read it as Rochester is a villain? Like, is that how you see his character? No, not always. And I I think that there is absolutely the way of reading it, that like he's somebody who doesn't necessarily know what to do, that he got locked into a situation. And some of the versions I feel like he's really just locked in and, and, not obviously as much of a victim as poor Bertha, but still somewhat a victim of his time because there weren't a lot of options mm-hmm. back then. You couldn't get divorced. You know, any there wasn't good psychiatric treatment. If she really mm-hmm. was mentally ill, I don't know what you would do back then. I think you could do better mm-hmm. than he did. I'm definitely not like absolving <laughs> him. Even at his absolute best, he blocking somebody in an attic is never, ever, ever nice. But there are times that I do think in some of the versions, there's a bit more of a tragedy in it. Like that... I still Mm -hmm. think he's definitely the antagonistic force in a lot of them, at least one of them. But I do sometimes think, depending on the version, that it is kind of just he doesn't know what to do. And I still think he's making the wrong choice. But it's a situation where it's like the the time period was so oppressive that 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 definitely Mm -hmm. plays into. But then, yeah, other versions, I agree. And I think even in I actually think in the book. And I always forget this till I read some of the dialogue that he says about Bertha that's just vicious. And a lot of times they leave that out of the movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think about the uh, the Mia Wasikowska version where he, I think he's actually more, a little more tragic in that version. Like, um, because he just seems really sad in, in it. Like, he doesn't know what to do. And you, you end up cutting out a lot of the dialogue where he's just lambasting her and her whole family. And it's just like, whoa, dude. Like, the, the original book, I'm like, man, that is... That, I always forget until I go back to it. I'm like, he's pretty brutal. I mean, the things that he says, he's really angry. So, yeah. <laughs> well, and how much of it is tone too, mm-hmm. right? Like we talk about that in, um, I think the two extremes that we often talk about is um, in the 2006 BBC miniseries okay. with um, Toby Stevens. Okay. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's got that. Ruth Wilson and Toby Stevens. It's a very good one, okay. but it's we, we talk about that as, peak soft boy Rochester mm-hmm. where he he's very like little little bean of a man <laughs> very very clearly caught in that bad situation yeah. and very clearly actually caring for Bertha in the mm. best way that they have at the time okay where then the other side of that is the 97 with Syrian Hines okay um where he does a lot of screaming at everyone about how it's actually their fault that he locked someone in the eye. yes I think I have seen that one because he's like not romantic at all in that one that one's just he's really really vicious and it's like whoa like yeah. Jane run run <laughs> yes exactly <Seriously. laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a really interesting way to kind of take that idea, that version of him where he is just 
so incredibly selfish and Mm -hmm. and take that to this extreme of maybe he's just actively manipulating these people in his life Mm -hmm. and the people who don't fit that mold get locked in an attic yeah right yeah and what you said too about like the lines that Rochester says about her, that's oh. something I think that um, I wanted to actually talk to you about when it came to adopting Bertha into your story or B as she's called yeah. is because most of what we know of her from Jane Eyre is told from potentially a very unreliable narrator or yes. a biased narrator in mm-hmm. the very least. Mm-hmm. So when you decided to write her as a character, how did you approach that? And how did you decide to give her a voice to a character that previously didn't really have much of one? You know, one of the things I wanted to look at was, you know, reading his dialogue and being like, how could this be? If you look at him as someone who's manipulative, manipulative or abusive, what, what would I see? Like, and sadly, the people maybe I've known in my life that have been manipulators, when they said things like this, what was really going on? And kind of like doing that sort of flip side and then like kind of building her slowly from there. And also just thinking about women who do like kind of push back against their own time period and say, you know, I'm not going to go with these social norms. What do they look like? And kind of, you know, again, just fleshing her out from that point and thinking also, you know, he talks about her about when they first met and how everybody just thought she, she was so beautiful and she was the socialite. And, you know, we don't get a lot about that, but we get enough that I'm like, if everybody wanted to be around her, she couldn't have been that bad, right? Like people will pick up quickly. It's like, I don't want to marry that girl. And yet everybody wanted to. So I always felt like those lines about her, I actually believed from him the most in the book, no matter which version I was thinking, because it was like, that seemed like, you know, an assessment of what was going on. And I always thought like in that way, it made it even make more sense to pair her with Lucy from Dracula, because in that way, they're both socialites. They were both sort of alliance of the party. Everybody liked to be around them. And then this, this force comes in and they're no longer allowed to be the life of the party anymore. So that was sort of where I kind of came into it and thought, you know, they both were socialites and they both did like to be around people. And that was something that, you know, made them happy at some point to some degree. And so that was really where I kind of came from it at and then just built her out from there to see, you know, who is she and what did she really want and what would have, what would have been a better ending than obviously being locked in an attic. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most other endings. Most other endings. <laughs> Most other, if I had to pick, yeah, picking an ending, I think I'm going to pick most other endings before I pick Bertha. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, so obviously our listeners are very familiar with Jane Eyre. Otherwise, guys, what are you doing here? Um, I, we love you. Please stop. It's, you don't have to listen to it. It's You're okay. Unless you just think we are so charming that you don't even care about Jane Eyre, which works. Um, but our listeners are most likely to be pretty familiar with that. Um you might have guessed from my uh, level of spook tolerance that I'm not super familiar with Dracula. So I obviously have some opinions about this question, but I'm very curious as to what your thoughts were on how familiar do people need to be with the story of Jane Eyre and the story of Dracula in order to enjoy your book? I honestly think if you just have a kind of passing familiarity, you can probably come into it and follow it. I tried to keep that in mind. I, I assume most people who are going to read it are going to have some familiarity with both stories, but I tried to actually fill in the blanks a lot as I went along. So that way, if you just are like, I have no idea, or if you only know one and not the other, which I know is a possibility, I tried to keep that in mind as I was writing it. 
Plus also what I, I did a lot was kind of rewrite them anyway. So in some ways there's some things that are that are different. You know, what goes on in the attic, for example, is is very different in Reluctant Immortals than than what actually happens in Jane Eyre. And some of the things with Lucy and how she, you know, she, how she meets her end in the book, the original book, and how that is very different in, in the version that I, I created. So I think a, a passing familiarity, but I don't definitely, you don't have to like reread it right beforehand. I think you'll be able to easily follow along if you're just like generally know about the two books. Yeah, that definitely, I think the way that I felt reading it, not knowing the story of Dracula and like the name Lucy sounded familiar and that Dracula was a vampire was how much I knew. Um, my level, my level of understanding vampire lore is fully when I was 14 and read Twilight. So like, that's where oh I'm at. Um, but I very much felt like with, I think you did a really beautiful job of making a lot of allusions to the story. Cause I, with Jane Eyre, I could pick up on all of those. Um, and sort of that way that you were able to talk through them seeing their own stories play out mm. as told by others mm. and the way that they sort of like talk through that wasn't how it was. And like, you're able to sort of retell those stories from these new perspectives, but in a way that's not like, okay, sit down, ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about everything from my life and retell the story, you know, already. Yes. That was something I very so, much wanted to avoid. I didn't want it to be something, especially for people who were at least somewhat familiar. I didn't want them to be like, oh my gosh, are you really going to tell me the story? I already know. So I wanted to kind of, you know, that, that's, that's good. I'm glad that that's not how you felt. I did. I think it's almost something yeah, I was trying to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like if you watch like a, a really great sitcom and you watch just one episode versus watching like all of the mm -hmm. episodes mm -hmm. like that's kind of how I felt where it's like you can follow the story you've got all the mm -hmm. stuff that you need mm -hmm. you can enjoy this mm -hmm. book but there's there's little nuggets of extra special things that you can pick up if you know the story really well then that was exactly what I was trying to do I thought let's like just put in little bits and pieces here and there so it's something that if you just mm -hmm. go right over it that you don't catch it no big deal but if you do it can be kind of like hey hey I know we all like these stories. So here, here's this thing that's like a reference back to the original. I was going to say too, is that so like, I also, well, I might've read Dracula when I was in middle school, maybe. Um, but I've definitely listened to it on like audiobook with my dad. Uh, I saw the movie that had um, the guy from Harry Potter in it. And, yeah. oh, that doesn't help, but whatever. Um, the, uh, I saw one of the- Gary Oldman, right? The, uh, <laughs> yes, that's the one yeah, with the big Stone. bun head. Yes, yes. yes. I saw a bun head version of Dracula. That. That's perfect, that's perfect. <laughs> um, and then there's so many other like vampire things that I have consumed that I'm a big fan of. So one thing that I think is so interesting when it comes to like writing about vampires is I feel like nowadays there is no strict set of rules yes. like you can kind of change anything to make it work for your universe how did you sort of approach that when kind of taking some well-known vampire laws adding some of your own um what was your process for that you know I what I think is so fun about vampires in particular is that because we have such a familiarity with them that you can do almost anything now and so I thought you know what do I want to do in mind what do I want to comment on because so many things people think came from Dracula that don't it didn't come from Dracula going out in the daylight. He could go out in the daylight. It just wasn't powerful. It didn't like turn him into dust. I actually still like the lore of it turning the vampires into dust. It's fascinating. But I like the idea of trying to go back to that source material saying, here's what isn't from that. So this wouldn't have been necessarily from the world that she was coming from. And so kind of playing with that and seeing, you know, the different types of things you can do. And I love how 
Dracula always comes back from the ashes and things. He always comes back. You know, I watched all the Hammer movies growing up and I, I always loved them. And But he's always coming back. There's always some weird way that Dracula comes back. And so I was thinking about that. And I'm like, and that's where like in it, she has like several urns of his ashes and she has to keep the urns separated because like the urns are always trying to get together and, and break apart so he can, he can rise again. And I just thought that was... Because oftentimes in the vampire movies, like somebody deliberately tries to raise him or somebody does something silly and he comes back. But I'm like, what if he's just always trying to all the time and he's just like opportunistic? So that was like how I approached that. So it just seemed really fun because I just I like the idea of these urns always like bothering her and like even each having their own personalities, like these like distillations of his personality. So it just seemed like a, a fun thing to kind of play on the vampire lore that a lot of us already know. That's great. And I have to say, by the way, you mentioning the Hammer films, I recently became obsessed with them. I'm a big Peter Cushing fan. Yes. And so the fact that yes. his name was mentioned in this book made me very happy. <laughs> What's funny about that is when I first when I first went to write it, I was like, how much am I going to reference the original movies? How much is that going to be something that I'm going to do? And one of the things was, and I'm like, I can't imagine writing this book in a world where Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee aren't aren't in existence like that actually made me sad so I'm like just lean into that and let's actually play with that and have it be this thing of like okay and yes at the end when she actually mentions Peter Cushing I was so excited about that like I love that you brought that up because I was like I get to mention Peter Cushing this is great because even though she's a vampire she's also like a vampire hunter at the same time so I just thought it was like a a fun play because I love Peter Cushing in those movies he was the that's best. amazing <laughs> so good um, so I I feel like we're ready to transition into our spoiler conversation because right. I have a lot of super specific questions <laughs> that I want to ask about things. But Piper, did you have anything else pre-spoiler before we jump into that? Oh, I think my last kind of pre-spoiler thing, and we've sort of already talked about this, but um, so one thing that I'm also curious about is, so when adopting such classic and beloved characters to an original story like this one, um, you know, each one, like we've kind of talked about, comes with their own well-established reputations mm -hmm. and fan bases. Yes. Um, did you consider that at all? Was there any kind of pressure to think, oh, someone's going to have a lot to say about how I put these words into this character's <laughs> mouth? Or were you just kind of the author who's like, no, they're my characters now? How, how do you feel? <sighs> You know, I was aware that there's definitely going to be, you know, some people are like, because mm -mm, this is not a purist take on this at all. So I feel like, you know, this is definitely not one that if you're expecting some, you know, I just wrote, I just wrote a nonfiction article about this talking about how retellings, they can be very close to the original source material, or they can go way off into a, into a very unusual direction. And I've always liked retellings that are just really bizarre and really out there, really do something I never expect. Because otherwise, I just want a straight version, you know, just a normal version of the original material. I just want it to be a very, you know, I like that. That's fine. Adaptations that are very close to the material are great. But you're going to do a retelling, in my opinion. Go do something different. Do something that people haven't seen before, because otherwise I can just go back and put the original source material. So I do know that some people might have issues with some of the ways that I, you know, rewrite the characters. But I tried to keep... What, with each one of them, I tried to look at what am I trying to say about their personalities and trying to keep certain aspects that to me are like the big parts of who they are and being true to them in that sense. But then from there being like, you know, also we're, we're all changing as human beings, right? As you get older, you're a different person and they've, they've got a lot of years to change. I mean, you think how much you change from being a teenager to when you're in your 20s or 30s. Imagine, you know, when you're a teenager until you're like 200 or whatever, like you're going to change a lot. So my thought was, and especially... <laughs> 
going from the era that they're from into the 60s, you're going to have unusual reactions to things. So I just kind of went with like, how would I react in, in this situation? Maybe not the way I would react like yesterday when I went to the grocery store, right? Like if I'm in this situation, it's going to be different. So I kind of like tried to keep that core of who I felt that they were and then just kind of let this, you know, kind of unfold in, in what way I felt like I could see them being. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's do spoilies. <laughs> okay. So this is, I know we, I'm going to be so explicit. If you should read this book, we're going to say that because I loved it. Um, but if you, if you don't want it to be spoiled, please stop reading, stop listening, go buy the book, start read reading. the book, and then obviously come back because <laughs> we're going to say cool things about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so specifically with talking about the, the vampire lore thing okay. made me want to move into the spoiler discussion okay. because I want to talk about all these little nuances because I see the vampire lore. I read a lot of fantasy books mm-hmm. um, and I almost felt like it was an interpretation of a magic system, like Ooh. the way that you kind of go into these the sunlight Mm -hmm. is memories instead of it being Mm -hmm. some of those other pieces, Mm -hmm. the way that her thrall works, the way that they kind of like come back from the dead. Um, So all those different pieces, how did, did you sort of, and I think the way you, you melded them in was really good because I get very over really detailed magic systems where you sit down and go, let me student teacher explain Mm -hmm. to you all of the rules of this magic (laughs) system. Um, but it sort of came up naturally, but it felt really thought through. So how did you approach, did you, was your approach sort of like, this is the way I want to tell this story. So I'm going to add this function in, or did you think through the functions first and then go, here's how that would play in this space, in this scene? I think there there was some of both. (laughs) I I think there were, there was some things that it was like way in advance. I knew, you know, this is how I want this specific, you know, vampire legend or vampire lore to work within my story. And then other things was, as it was going along, I'm like, you know, and in the first draft kind of finding those moments of like, okay, well, what would happen here? And then kind of building that, that lore into it. And so, yeah, with the, with the memories and the sunlight was definitely something I feel like that happened in the moment on the page early on in the first few chapters, because I remember being like, I knew I didn't want the sun to turn them into, you know, dust. Again, I don't mind that. I actually think that can work really well in some things, but I like the fact that that wasn't in Dracula. So I thought, okay, well, what would it do? Because if they're not as powerful, what would happen there? And I thought so much of this book is about memories, about living in the past, is about the trauma of the past. And so I thought it would be interesting if that's what it brought out, especially when we think about sunlight. We always think, oh, it's pure. It's pure energy. It's something very pure. And so it to me, it just seemed like an interesting thing of like, you know, oh, it's, you know, this purifying thing, but then it, it brings brings you back to this place that feels very, very dark. And that was, to me, an interesting juxtaposition with using that. So that was why I was like, okay, I'll go in this direction. And then I, I felt like that, that, to me, was an interesting way of approaching it for Lucy. And, and it also... Also, this is kind of like showing my hand as a as a writer. It also helps you do a little bit of backstory and exposition without having to be like, now let's go into a flashback. <laughs> it actually made it so it's part of it. So you can take this moment and you mm-hmm. get a little bit of what she's going through and what she's been through without it being like, and now I'm going to have a dream. Not that that's the end of the world. I've seen that done <laughs> yeah. well in things. But it's like if I can find like those moments that it makes sense organically to talk about, you know, and fill in a little bit of details, that's always like what I like because... I'm not a person who like, oh, I want a whole chapter on on the backstory of something. My husband doesn't mm-hmm. mind that. It's always interesting. He doesn't mind that at all. But I'm like, I'm like, I don't like that. Some people don't mind yeah. it. Yeah. 
Yeah. My brother is obsessed. Like the magic system thing that I was talking about, my brother is always recommending books for me. And some of the books that he recommends, it genuinely is like three quarters of the book is the logistics of the magic mm-hmm. system. And I will call him and I'll be like, I hate you. Why would you do this to me? Um, so I, I totally agree. It can work well. It can be done yeah. well. And it can, it's a, some people really enjoy it. Not for me. Um, and I think the way that you did that and, and utilizing some of these mechanisms was great. The specifically the, the trauma mm-hmm. I think is, is talked about really well and how that works with memory. Mm-hmm. I know this is going to be weird that I'm going to quote your book to you, but my favorite <laughs> line that you did um, talking about that was when you said the past is always heavier than you expect it to be. Oh. That was a moment of like, as I haven't, I, I'm going to just like, I've had some traumatic experiences mm-hmm. and there's definitely like that experience of having those traumas triggered in a space when you're like not ready mm-hmm. for it mm-hmm. feels like that the way you describe these the sunlight bringing out those memories mm-hmm. and it it's one of those things where like it is a vampire experiencing a magic thing <laughs> but it's also this incredibly human experience which i think is balanced really really well in this book Good. I'm glad to hear that because that's definitely how how I feel about it, you know, and I feel like a lot of us sadly can say that when you have this moment that something reminds you of something from the past, you're like, whoa, I was not braced for that at all. I was not ready for that. And how, how like very jarring and scary that can be, you know, it can be very, very uncomfortable at best. So yeah, that was definitely what I was thinking of. So I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Not that I'm glad that you feel that way. I obviously don't want you to feel that way, but I'm glad that that at least, you know, expressed that. One thing, too, um, that I'd be very curious to get your personal thoughts on is so there's I think when Rochester's in the book, he's pretty much just a bad guy and he wants nothing to do with him. And neither does any woman really, uh, if they're not like being hypnotized by his wealth or whatever. But I feel, and maybe this is my own kind of weird kind of dark Gothic fangirl who loves romance whenever I can find it there. I feel like there's a different kind of level of connection between Lucy and Dracula. Obviously Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. a very toxic, bad relationship. Mm -hmm. He's a bad guy. She doesn't want to be with him, Mm -hmm. but was there an element when writing their scenes together where there is sort of like a bit of this like kind of forbidden romance element or no, am I just a crazy person? No, I definitely think so. Yeah, I very much think so because for me, again, going back to trauma, right? And I think that a lot of us have been in relationships with somebody that we're trying to get out of that relationship because we know it's it's bad for us, that it's toxic for whatever reason. I mean, there's lots of different ways a relationship can be toxic. And obviously theirs is particularly toxic over decades, mm-hmm. but... Yes, I very much felt it was like this situation where it's like both of them, even even he knows he shouldn't be, you know, still hanging around her, but mm-hmm. he, he can't help himself. There's like this, I mean, obviously he could help himself, right? If he wanted to, <laughs> but it's like, it's this type of thing that it's almost like this irresistible thing between them. And it's so toxic and they both know it's toxic, but there some of their scenes are some of my favorite to write because there's so much tension there. It's like, I'm like yelling at Lucy, get away from him. And I'm yelling at Dracula, like, why are you still hanging out with her? She wants to kill you. She has killed you. She will kill you again the moment she can. Like, both of you are better off getting away from each other as quickly as possible. But 
yeah, I thought it was it was it was actually really fun. I actually liked writing those scenes. And there are a lot of scenes in this that I actually really enjoyed writing. This is probably the most fun I've ever had writing a book. But with them every time, like, you know, they take a couple car rides together and it's just like it's like get out of her car because it's her car. I'm like, Dracula, get out of her car. That is that is Lucy's car. She <laughs> loves that car. Get out of her car. But it was it was fun to to write those scenes because it was there was so much built in tension. And again, you know. Even if you don't know a lot about Dracula, you know he's always going after women. In all the versions, he's always oh, yeah. going after women. So you at least bring that to the table usually, as as I would assume as mm-hmm. a reader. And so it's like, yeah, terrible toxic relationship, but definitely, definitely still an attraction between them. Run, Lucy, run! <laughs> I love that you mentioned too that she is dangerous to him as well because. <laughs> Mm-hmm. There, I think that's a part of the draw of vampire fiction in a lot of senses is that it's scary and it's sexy. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact mm-hmm. that we find it sexy makes it even scarier because it's that yeah. whole taboo thing. Yeah. The biting itself is very kinky. It's intimate. <laughs> There's this weird <laughs> level of control to it that like you shouldn't want, but you kind of do. And mm-hmm. so that level of equal danger that, mm-hmm. yeah, like he will always try and like, I don't know, manipulate control, but also mm-hmm. kill her. But then she's also trying to kill him right back. And mm-hmm. that's so interesting. Just had to um, say that. <laughs> that actually is one of the, one of the things that I was really, really curious about. And I think maybe, um, this is something, I think this is something that was really well done and very, very interesting in this book in particular. Um, but it's the way that kind of the desire, um, sexually, but also like for food is so intertwined mm-hmm. in these characters mm-hmm. and like particularly with the character of Michael mm-hmm. and the way that Lucy has this thrall over him so there's no potential for consent there yes. and she's very very aware yes. of that and yes. it's the thing that she hates the most about yes. Dracula yes. and so there's con- but there's constantly this desire mm-hmm. for him and she has that and Dracula has that desire for her mm-hmm. and there's this like weirdness there mm-hmm. and the way that that desire and control plays in together I'm I found really really interesting and I'm curious about what your kind of approach to that was yeah with the character of Michael that was actually one I ha- I felt like I'd be very careful about because it was like I didn't want her to go so far that like the reader's like whoa no 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 even though we come into it we know she's a vampire we know she doesn't want to be a vampire and I feel like there are like mm-hmm. these you know unlikely vampires that you see throughout media you know the characters that don't want to be vampires and have to figure out ways to kind of subvert it. So I felt like, you know, you bring that into it and people do know that this is a kind of, kind of character, a kind of archetype of the kind of, you know, unlikely vampire, vampire, you know, reluctant vampire. And so I'm like, okay, so we have that. So that, that, you know, people can bring that to the table, but it was something that throughout the entire book, I'm like, I want to show that, yes, she is dangerous and that, yes, that this is something she's always fighting, but I never wanted it to go so far that it's like, mm, no, 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 this is not a character you can like anymore because she pushes that, you know, that issue of consent was something with all of their scenes. I'm always like, you know, okay, we're spoiling it, right? So I can say that was why it was yeah, so yeah, important at the end that he leaves. He takes off mm-hmm. because there's yeah. no way after what happened between them that they could ever have a happy ending. It was really important mm-hmm. that it was like, they, they may have in a different set of scenarios be able to be together, you know, but in this scenario, mm-hmm. no, what she's done has crossed too many lines. And so it was like that last scene in the last chapter was really important to me to show like he leaves, he still likes her. She still likes him. They still care about mm-hmm. each other, but there's no way after everything that's happened because her consent is, you know, he has not consented to any of this. 
And mm-hmm. so that was definitely something that I was thinking about throughout because I didn't want to push it so far that people were like, no, I don't like Lucy because of that. I'm like, I want to want to make sure you can still, you don't like Lucy for another reason, that's fine. But that was the one reason I'm like, I'm hoping <laughs> nobody dislikes her for that because I tried to be very careful with that, even though obviously at one point she does bite him because I did want mm-hmm. it to still yeah. be, this is, she's still a danger. If you don't show that there's danger, then there's no danger, right? Like, so right. it was important mm-hmm. to me of like, you know, especially Dracula, Dracula, Renfield in that case, I think she had come back from being killed by Renfield. And so she's so hungry and she's just delirious. But at the same time, like you can't go and bite Michael. You can't do that, Lucy. <laughs> That's not okay. And so, you know, but even then, then she leaves them. And then of course there's the cascading effect of when, she, when she's away, that's when Rochester and Dracula get them. So there's like the whole, every, every decision mm-hmm. they make, even when they're trying to make the best decision, keeps having these, these effects, this kind of domino effect throughout the book. Well, and I think it's such a good example, this, the, the whole moments with her and Michael, it's such a great way to a flip that gender stereotype mm-hmm. on its head. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing that mm-hmm differently mm-hmm. and and the way that you feel about that i think we all have that ingrained mm-hmm. um sexism that lives within us yeah. that we some of us fight really hard against all the time but seeing that gender uh-huh. kind of flipped on its head you can see the difference in the way that story is and it really highlights the way she reacts in instances where she could take power and control with this non-consensual mm-hmm. power that she has mm-hmm. and every time her saying no um, except for in that situation where we see kind of why she says no to that, yeah. because he would have just let her kill him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that's that's such an interesting way that that plays out with the character. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought the parallel of our two kind of like primary thrall characters of Michael and then also Renfield mm-hmm. is kind of this like, here's an example of what might happen to Michael if mm-hmm. this goes on too long. Yes. So I thought that was a nice parallel balance. Mm-hmm. And also... Well done to take a character that I typically think of as being like, gross, get that bug eating guy out of here. But I was like, no, I think he seems like I love how he's trying really hard to help her because he knows that he and <laughs> I'm blinking. He and Lucy are both, uh, you know, puppets on Dracula's yeah. strings. And so mm-hmm. he's like, us puppets got to work together. And the few times when he can kind of like defy his master, mm-hmm. uh, it was all very gratifying. And to see him get peace in the end, too, yeah. was nice. No, poor Renfield. I've always, I've always loved Renfield. I think when I was really little, like, he kind of scared me. But as I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, he's really tragic too. Like he doesn't want this. Like this isn't what he wants to do. So I thought it'd be really fun because so much of this book was about taking these characters more on the fringes and kind of giving them a little bit more of a spotlight. So I, I like the idea of kind of bringing him in and having him be. He's in it probably almost as much as Dracula is because he kind of shows up throughout, you know, unless you count the urns, which honestly, that's Dracula's. Dracula's in a lot more, but Dracula as like, you know, standing there in front of you, like mouthing off because man, Dracula, he's got, he's always mouthing off to Lucy. (laughs) Oh my God. Both of these men, you did a really good job of making them realistic and unbelievably annoying. Mm -hmm. Like just the most... Like, and, and because it felt so real, right? Like you're like, these are, these are immortal, like guys who treat the world like they're gods and the world is there to serve them. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of references that Lucy makes, um, to the idea that this is kind of how men treat the world. And I think that was probably even more true in the sixties, although it still holds Mm -hmm. true today of just women are for taking and men are doing the taking. Um, and I think that that is 
I, uh, I felt like a very clear message in this book <laughs> is that that is not a real, that's not what's real, but that is what the, yes. the kind of trope is and what the world usually kind of demands of those genders. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. I was just going to say not to go from a very serious, important topic to one that's quite silly, but um, one thing I, <laughs> that I actually got a lot of entertainment out of when reading this is picturing all the male characters with huge 70s sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> think about that at all <laughs> I actually did but now I will now I totally will I love that no I didn't Amazing. think of that but that's great that's perfect honestly why I pictured when Renfield showed up that he would have big 70s sideburns even though he's a decaying corpse I think he was still trying to style himself so he had like the big glasses as well <laughs> at least I, I hope so that. I love that so much that is great <laughs> That's perfect. Um, another piece that is both lighter and although heavier than Piper's large mutton chop reference um, is the my this is like the reason that I was like, we have to do a spoiler section because I need to know what she thinks about this. I sort of lost my mind with the Jane and Bertha were in love the whole time. Aww. I love that idea. I, like because I was I was honestly, I love a romance. I'm a mainly a romance reader. And I was like, listen, I'm going to read this book and it's going to be scary, but it's going to be good and it's going to be good book to read. And then Jane shows up and they're in love. And I'm like, someone to root for. <laughs> so I'm wondering, like, how did you how did you think about that? Was that something you thought about really early on? Oh, yeah. Did it just sort of happen organically as you were writing it? What was the what was the process? Yeah, there? the original story, the original short story I wrote was the uh, woman out of the attic was absolutely that that was built into that story. That was basically the crux of the story was that this was, you know, these these type of characters that are kind of repeating these different versions and different variations of this gothic story. And they, they're, they're the two that actually fall in love. And in that story, the kind of Bertha character is already a ghost. And so it's like, you know, it's this mm. ghost and, and like kind of like the Jane character. And so with this, it was a lot more fun in a way because they're actually both still like corporeal. They're not like, you know, one of them isn't a ghost, even though they're both, they're both undead. But yeah, so that was something really early on because I always like to be... Even when I was young, I was always like, we need to get rid of the guys. The girls should just run off together. Even when I was little. And so the girls just need to run away together. And so that's like always my solution as a kid. Just run away from the men. Just run off together. And so it was like, this was like my my opportunity to be like, yeah, yeah, just run away together. Although they did, obviously Jane doesn't early on and then kind of lives to Mm -hmm. regret that. But they get to be together at the end. I can say that because we're doing a spoiler section, which is fine. Because like that way I can say, because that was like something... (laughs) That was absolute throughout that I knew they'd end up together. That was so important to me to be like, they go through all this, but they get to be together. Yes, they lost a lot of time, but they're immortal. So they're, you know, although at the end, they're not really necessarily immortal anymore, but they'll get to live out the rest of their life. I together. love the idea of them growing old together, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that they've had this tortured existence that yeah. both of them have had so long yeah. of like not really getting to live their lives and then they truly get to live their lives at the end I loved it but yeah I think that was that was probably my my favorite part because I love a romance but just there's so many there's it also felt um such a great representation of the two different ways these these women who are abused by the same man experience the trauma of that Mm -hmm. um because I think what our my interpretation of the way the character of Bertha acted was she just 
wouldn't bow down to what he wanted. Yes. So he locked her away. Yeah. And then Jane made compromise after compromise yes. until that strong character that we know yes. by the end of the story of Jane Eyre, we know her as the strong yes. character. And then the idea is after decades that gets chipped away until she's just a person who does what he wants. Yes. That is exactly how I approached it as well. Because to me, it's obviously, you know, that's, that's probably the character that's the most different, I think, from the original, because it's like, and I feel at the end, she's definitely back to being, a, you know, a, feeling like a more whole person at the end of Reluctant Immortals, but very much so. And I like that to say that it's compromise after compromise, and she kept trying to find ways to be able to make this work like so many people do in abusive relationships. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that very much happens. Like, okay, I'll compromise on this because we're all told you should compromise sometimes. And in many cases, that's really good advice. But in these cases where it's compromise after compromise and by, you know, by the point that we see her, it's, she's just very worn down from like decades of this. So that's very much where we came in with, with Jane, that it's, it is a different Jane Eyre, I think more so than any of the other characters, but I feel like, you know, she finds herself as the story goes along and, and is able to reclaim who she is. Very nice. Yeah, and I think Lucy does a great job of kind of being the person pointing that out because mm -hmm. she's not, it's interesting to watch that relationship from solely Lucy's perspective because she sort of starts from this perspective of we can't trust Jane mm -hmm. and then she evolves into this, yeah. okay, well, she has betrayed us, but <laughs> I guess she's, she, I don't, I guess I get it because I've also been this in this abused place. Yes. But for B, it's harder because yes. she was the one who trusted her originally and that trust was broken. Yes. Um, so I thought that was really well done and really interesting to see kind of their sympathies flip, mm -hmm. even though Lucy refused to tell B how she should feel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, with, with B's character in it, like, She's all the way along, just like I think a lot in, in the original Jane Eyre, she never goes along with what Edward Rochester wants. It's always from the kind of the get-go in the original and in this version, it's like, no, I'm not doing what you say. I'm just not, like, that's not how it's going to be. Whereas Jane, again, in the original and in this is much more amenable to being trying to work with him on things. And so it's like when, when Jane turns out to, you know, betray them midway through the book, B is just stunned by it and it's like how could you do this i would never do this and then at that moment mm -hmm. like you said is when lucy's like well i kind of know what this is like she and i are a little more similar than i wanted to think and so i i actually i feel like that particular thing even though i kind of knew the general i knew i very much knew where everything was going but that that specific sympathy between lucy and jane i feel like did develop as i was writing it because i realized very very much on the page i'm like this is very much what Lucy's going through and she's going to recognize that. And she's going to be like, I don't want to admit that I know what this is like, but I do know what this is like. So yeah, that was definitely something that was, it was interesting to explore. And it wasn't something that right away I knew was going to happen until like I'm in that, in that moment of writing it and being like, mm -hmm. that's really the direction that I feel like this would go. Cause that's what, if I was in that situation, it's kind of like, that's where I would be like, Oh, I actually know what that's like. I wish I didn't know what that's like, but I know what that's like. <laughs> So Gwendolyn, when someone picks up Reluctant Immortals, what is your hope of what they will get out of the story and take away from this tale? Honestly, the main thing is just celebrating the characters of Lucy and Bertha and just having that, you know, focus on them for a change. Because I feel like these are two stories that we know of. We know Dracula and Jane Eyre. And, and to me, just giving them a chance to shine, getting giving readers a chance to get to know them and see something from their point of view is really just the, 
the main thing I want people to take away from it. And hopefully just, you know, a fun, when I say groovy gothic adventure, you know, it's like a horror adventure story, you know, just fun foray into the 1960s. Awesome. Very cool. <laughs> Do you have any um, other kind of like gothic books, movies um, that you oh. would recommend for people if they love this? Like what else should oh. they check out? Wow, that's a great question. Like we said, I've already been talking about the Hammer movies. I'm, I'm sure most people who like Dracula have seen them. But if you haven't, definitely check out the Hammer movies. And, you know, even if you have, watch them again because they're fun. One movie I think about, even though it's not vampire, is the movie The Love Witch. It's very much got a, you know, it's got a very kind of 60s feel to it. It's very, it looks almost technicolor, even though it isn't. And so that kind of color palette and kind of women trying to navigate a world. And it's based in California, so it's actually set in California. So I feel like that's one that if you guys haven't seen, it's a little bit gothic. And it's not super gothic, but I think it's a little bit. I think it counts. Very cool. Awesome. That's great. I'll put that on my list for sure. <laughs> well, and then obviously all of our listeners should go check out all of your books because I know Piper and I have already talked about there was I there was a I'm I I'm gonna let her read them first and tell me if they're too spooky for me. Um, but uh Piper already mentioned um that she saw some of yours that look particularly good. And if they want to see those, um they can find that on your website. So it is your last name is spelled K-I- S-T-E for our listeners. So you can find Gwendolyn, um, all of her website has all of her books and the short stories that were referenced and all of that good stuff. So if you have read this book and you're now obsessed, you can go binge all of her stuff and find it there. Um, she's also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram under that same name. Um, so you can find all of her social and we will be tagging her in all of our stuff as well. And we'll put her website in the episode description. Um, yeah. But do you have any other projects that you're working on? Any other appearances that you have? I know you've got a lot going on this week with your book coming out. Anything else that our listeners should show up for? I don't know. Probably. Yeah, probably. But I'll probably have it on my <laughs> website. I'll have it on my website okay. and on social media because I'm sure there'll be something that I will be promoting by by this point but yeah so yeah so for our listeners we are recording this in July yeah. so we are recording it a month early so it's understandable that you don't know your schedule for a week a month from now <laughs> off the top of your head um but yeah you can again you can find all of those socials um Twitter Facebook and Instagram um and we'll make sure to tag you on all of those so our listeners can find you really easily yeah but Gwendolyn, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us a look into your creative process, your inspirations, and just the ability to chat with you about all things spooky and girl power and yes. groovy. <laughs> I love spooky it. Spooky and girl power. Yes, spooky and girl power and groovy. I love that. That's awesome. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Yes, thank you so much. Um, as always, our listeners, you can find all the Airbud stuff um, at Airbuds on Twitter, Facebook. Facebook and Instagram. And then you can email us airbeds at gmail.com. Absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, Lillian, do we know what next week's episode topic is? Or is that a mystery? The next episode is going to be on the actually very first TV movie, which happened was in 1949. Um, I have heard not great things. So <laughs> we will, our listeners recommended this. I, it's one that we can watch in multiple chunks on YouTube. Um, it looks like it might be one of our 
little little bit campy, a little bit <laughs> less less the spook, more the wow, you did put it on film though. Oh, so boy. we'll find out. Um, I love haven't those, actually though. watched it. <laughs> those like I either want like the best of the best or the worst of the worst. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. So yeah, so much content to discuss. <laughs> oh my god. So that'll be that'll be next week. Um Piper and I do really ham it up for those. So please, please join us again to talk about the um, 1949 TV movie. Mm -hmm. But until then, thank you everyone for joining us and happy Jane Eyre reading and watching and go check out uh, Reluctant Immortals uh, because it's definitely worth your time. It's a wonderful book. But thanks. That's all for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.